The scripture reference this morning is Philippians 3.17 to 4.1. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have seen us model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform, transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Rich took away my mic again, so he's not even here. All right, let's give this a try. Good morning, everyone. So one of the most iconic scenes, I think, in The Empire Strikes Back is the lightsaber duel between Darth Vader and uh, Luke Skywalker. It's up on, I think it's Cloud City. They're in this central air vent, and, and Darth Vader cuts off Luke's hand, and so Luke is backed into the corner. He's... He's defeated, and, and Darth Vader lays out two options. One, Luke can be destroyed by his father. This is also the iconic scene where Darth Vader uh, reveals that he's Luke's father. And, or the other option is that Luke can join Darth Vader on the dark side, that they together can rule the galaxy, they can destroy the empire, emperor, and rule together. And Darth Vader says to Luke, it is your destiny. Can you hear James Earl much better than my voice? It is your destiny. There's, the, there's a few places in the Bible where we see uh, two paths laid out, side by side, which both lead to very different destinies. Psalm 1, for example, speaks of two ways, the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked leads to destruction. The way of the righteous leads to life. Jesus, in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, also speaks of two ways. He speaks about a broad way, a broad road that leads to destruction, and a narrow one that leads to life. And so Paul in this passage, uh, the passage that we looked at last week, Paul has actually kind of laid out that path that he's taken, that he's chosen. He had all these advantages that we talked about, all these gains, but after Paul encounters Jesus this all becomes, relatively speaking, garbage to him. And so coming to know Christ has set Paul off on a completely different journey, a different destination, a different path. And that destiny now is resurrection. And our passage for today begins with Paul saying, join me on that path. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, just as you have us as a model. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. So more literally in Greek, Paul is saying, become, he kind of makes up a word here actually, become co-imitators of me. Imitate me. 
Like that can seem a little bit odd maybe to our ears today. It seems a little strange for someone to say, imitate me. Maybe, uh, maybe people today don't say that quite as explicitly because we might be suspicious. It might sound a bit like a, a power trip. But Paul's saying imitate me, but he doesn't mean imitate my dress or imitate the fact that I speak Aramaic or that I'm traveling around the Mediterranean. Paul is closer to, I think, what he says more explicitly in 1 Corinthians, which is follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. But notice that Paul is not limiting himself here. It's not just him. He says, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. More literally, keep your eyes on those who walk as we do. That's what the Greek actually says, walk as we do. And think about that. There's a difference, I think, between living and walking. You can live in your head. You can't walk in your head. You, can, you, can, uh, you can't walk from your couch. Think about all the things you can do nowadays from your couch that would have been unimaginable to your parents or grandparents. You can order food. You can find endless amounts of entertainment. You can have almost any question imaginable answered from your phone. But if you say, I'm going to take a walk and then pull out your phone, you can't do it. See, in order to walk, you actually have to walk. And Paul says, keep your eyes on those people who are walking out their faith. Keep your eyes on those people who are living out their faith in very concrete ways. As we might say, they're not just talking the talk, they're walking the walk. This is important because think about this in in Paul's day in Philippi. At the time, how do you learn how to follow Jesus? You can't pick up a New Testament. There is no such thing as the New Testament. You can't hop on Amazon and choose from like one of like a million books on Christianity. You can't just absorb something from your culture like you can kind of do in our culture. You can get a little bit of a sense of maybe what Christianity is if you just kind of secondhandedly absorb it. Paul, remember, Philippi, they are a minority in a pagan culture. So how do you learn how to follow Jesus? You got some letters like Paul's to the Philippians. You might have a few itinerant preachers who are coming through the Ignatian way that follows through Philippi. But a lot of how you're going to learn is by watching people in your community model faith. And I think this is pretty different than most of us, many of us, think about education today. Because we tend to think about learning today as, as, well, I'm going to pick up a book, or I'm going to listen to a sermon, I'm going to go to Sunday school class. In Paul's day and in Jesus' day, learning was much more like what we talk about the apprentice-master relationship. And whenever I think about this, just because... um, I've kind of been in both education systems. I always think about my time farming, trying to learn how to farm, all these things that come with farming, planting crops, running a tractor, cultivating, fixing equipment, trying to weld, raising livestock are much, much better learned, not holing up in your house and reading books, but with an experienced farmer, with a master, with a mentor. So if you, you know, if you can read about what, what is clay soil, what is loamy soil or what is sandy soil. It's very different to pick up that soil and roll it around in your hands. That's how you kind of learn what sandy or clay soil is like. Following Jesus is much more like being an apprentice than being a student as we think about students. Following Jesus isn't just about downloading the right information, but watching others as they walk out their faith and then trying to incorporate that into our lives. Let me give you an example. I've I've spent now almost seven years in seminary. 
slowly working my way to master divinity. And I've learned a lot through theological education. I think there's a place for theological education in the church. I think it's very valuable. But I've also spent eight years in intentional Christian community, watching people live out their faith in very concrete ways, people who are very serious about their faith. And if someone came up to me today and said, I want to grow in my faith. I want, to, I want to grow as a disciple of Jesus. And what should I do? Should I spend three years in seminary? Or should I spend three years in close proximity to people, to mature disciples of Jesus who want nothing more in their lives than to follow Jesus? I would say, go live with those disciples. Go live with those disciples. Watch how they live out their faith and learn how to be a disciple of Jesus. Yesterday, we laid to rest our, our sister, Helen Bowman. I only knew Helen a couple years. Helen is a person I think Paul would say, watch that lady. Keep your eyes on how that lady walks. Watch closely how she lives her life. Watch how serious that woman is about prayer, how she prays with expectancy. Watch how that woman opens up her house and hosts people. Watch how she encourages people. Watch, watch how she walks out her journey as a disciple of Jesus and then imitate her and she imitates Christ. We need those people. That's why we need to be in Christian community. We can't do this on our computers or in our books. We got to be in Christian community. After telling the church in Philippi then to join and imitate him, Paul then turns to another group of people. So we're going to look at another path now. These people are walking very differently. They're walking to a very different destination. Destination. Can you put uh, verses 18 and 19 up, Ron? Might be the next one. <clears throat> For as I have often told you before and now tell you even in tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. We don't know who these enemies of the cross are. Whoever they are, they're on a very different path than Paul. Their God is their stomach. In the Greco-Roman world, stomach was used often as a kind of metaphor for appetites. So in general, kind of gluttony and sexual excess. So think food, drink, and sex. So someone whose God is their stomach is someone who, whose life is oriented around their appetites. I remember somebody saying to me, some people, lived, um, some people eat to live, but I live to eat. Right? That would be an example. I, I orient my life, my life's purpose is around food. And let's be clear here. These things in moderation are not bad. Food is a gift from God. The, the psalmist tells us, taste and see that the Lord is good. A.J. Swoboda in his book, Subversive Sabbath, uh, says that one time he was having this conversation with an agnostic friend, and he, uh, and he was asked to make the greatest argument for God's existence. And A.J. Swoboda said one word, mangoes. Fresh, ripe, just off the tree mangoes, which he says are so delicious, there is no way they come from nowhere. A mango, so Boda says, is God's love letter to humanity. I love that. I sometimes feel that way when I bite into Handel's Graham Central Station. If, if you haven't tried Graham Central Station, you need to, yeah, I'm getting an amen here. It's amazing. One of the ways Jesus walked people into the kingdom was through meals. Eating was a big part of Jesus' ministry. The Bible has a high view of sex between a man and a woman 
under the covenantal protections of lifelong marriage. But food and sex are terrible gods. When you make them your gods, they will lead you on a destructive path. Paul also says these enemies of the cross have their minds set on earthly things, and he he doesn't spell out here what those earthly things are, but we probably get a pretty good idea of what he's thinking in Colossians because he says something very similar. He says, set your mind not on earthly things, but put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So again, we have... Uh, the sexual excess, but look again, he has now greed. Maybe that's something we don't quite think of quite as much. And Paul says that rather than seeing this behavior as shameful, the enemies of cross are actually finding their glory in this. I mean, this is, this is not an old problem. This is not a new problem. I think even today we, 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 we see the glorification of things such as sexual immorality or greed, which we call sins, and we celebrate them. And Paul says this is a problem because it's taking you down a destructive path. But here's what, I, here's what really stuck out to me. I want you to notice how this makes Paul feel. How does it make him feel at an emotional level? How does it make him feel when he sees these enemies of the cross making their appetites their gods and sex and drink and food and wealth and power? It breaks his heart. It makes Paul weep. I think this is, a, this is a different reaction than we see today. How do we, what reactions do we see to enemies of the cross today? I, can, I thought of a few different ones. One is anger. So we can stand back and we can say, our, our culture is going to hell in a handbasket. And we need to fight like hell against these people that we perceive as threats to our Christian culture and our Christian way of life. That's one, anger. Another one's fear. Like, there are some deep cultural shifts happening around us. Make no doubt about it. There are, there are things that are changing, even in my lifetime, that we see are very contrary to the way of Jesus, that are not just tolerated today, but are celebrated. And it can make us fearful, okay? So we can become fearful. We can become self-righteous. We can look at around at the behaviors around us, and we can say, I am glad I'm not like them. But, you know, maybe that's one side. Another side is just indifference. Maybe we don't agree with this behavior, but what are you going to do? What are you going to do? But look at Paul. I think Paul models a different example. When Paul sees people choosing appetites as their gods, when he chooses that over following Jesus, he said it breaks his heart. Why? Because Paul has tasted the goodness of the Lord. Paul knows that even good things in this world, when you place those side by side, Jesus Christ, in comparison Like we talked about last week, those things are garbage. Paul knows that chasing after your appetites, building your life around pleasure, is nothing compared to the joy of following Jesus. And when he sees these people moving down a different path that ultimately leads to destruction, it breaks his heart and he weeps. I don't know, that's not always my reaction. I, I relate to all those reactions I just said. Fear, anger, self-righteousness, indifference? What if, what if we at Midway, rather than indifference or anger or fear to those around us who don't know Jesus, who we think are getting things wrong, making their lives around pleasure, what if we cared enough to weep? I think we'd be in a much better position than to then share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. 
Someone who, who you, we, our heart breaks for someone and then we tell them about Jesus, that's very different than being self-righteous and telling someone about Jesus or being angry at them and then telling them about Jesus. We are in a much better place because we actually care about them. So that's the path. That's the destiny of the enemies of the cross, destruction. But Paul now, he turns back to the other path. So this is the one now that followers of Jesus are on. And now he's going to look where that path is headed. You can put up uh, verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So what's the destiny of this path? It's not destruction. It's three things. One, a savior is coming. In Paul's day, people would line the streets and pour out into the, out of the walls of the city to greet and honor a victorious general or get a glimpse of a triumphant new emperor. In April 2008, I was working in Washington, D.C. when Pope Benedict made a visit to the United States. I think it was his only visit. And it included a parade through Washington, D.C., my office building was just a few blocks from the parade route, so I, I, I took off work and I went down there and I found just throngs of people on the streets stretching out their necks to try to get a glimpse of Pope Benedict in his glass-protected Pope Mobile to welcome and to celebrate his arrival. I also remember in 1994 being at the NCAA tournament regional final between Arkansas Razorbacks and Michigan Wolverines. For you college basketball fig, uh, fans, uh, Nolan Richardson, 40 Minutes of Hell, okay, and uh, the Fab Five. All of them were there except for uh, uh, one of the Fab Five. Does that mean anything to anybody? Okay. Yeah, one person, yeah. It was, a, it was a great game to be at, all right? An incredible game. And Bill Clinton came to that game, okay? He was a huge Razorbacks fan. I was just a kid, and I remember sitting in my seat thinking, when is the President of the United States going to walk in this stadium? I remember just eagerly anticipating getting a glimpse of the president arriving. Now think about that. If that's how we feel about the arrival of the head of a church or the head of state, imagine how electric that's going to be, how joyful that is going to be a million times over when we see King Jesus coming. Notice, though, this is something I think it's easy to miss. Where is Jesus coming from? Paul says, eagerly awaiting a Savior from there. Jesus is coming from heaven. And this is, this is a little different than we typically think about because this, the movement we typically think about is us going to heaven. But this is different. This is, this is Jesus and heaven actually coming to earth. If it's interesting, like the, the movement of heaven and earth in the Bible is always heaven coming to earth. Paul does not say that we are eagerly awaiting a day when Jesus will take us and bring us to heaven. Rather, we are eagerly awaiting a day when Jesus will come to us. This is the beautiful marriage of heaven and earth, as described in the book of Revelation. This is John's vision of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down where? To earth. This is God dwelling again with God's people. This is the merging of God's space and human space. And this is what Paul says we're waiting for. Okay, so that's the first one. Waiting for a Savior from heaven. Two, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control? 
as I was studying this passage, it's easy to kind of blow past this and be like, okay, whatever is that? But think about this. He's coming and everything will be under his control. You know what everything means? Everything. Every square inch of this universe, every person of the billions of persons that will inhabit this earth, everything will come under Jesus' control. That's Paul's vision for the future. That's what excites him. Not a day when we go to heaven, but when God's reign of justice and peace and well-being comes to earth. When you and I look around the world, we see signs everywhere that the world is not as it was originally created to be. But Paul says, in, using, in Jesus' language, Jesus talks about Matthew as the renewal of all things. There's a renewal coming. When all of creation will be renewed and transformed, when God's rule and reign will not just be recognized in heaven, but on earth. And that's what we, that's many of us who pray the Lord's Prayer, that's what we pray every day. Think about the first, the Lord's Prayer has a series of petitions. The first petition is always, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is heaven. Bring down your reign to earth. Bring down your rule to earth. That's what we're longing for. When every square inch of this universe is under God's control, that every person recognizes it. So Paul looks ahead, he sees a Savior coming, he sees everything coming under that Savior's control, and finally he sees the transformation of our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Remember, the path for the enemies of Christ, what's the destination? Destruction. What's the path of those who put their trust in Jesus Christ? Resurrected bodies. The Bible, the Bible actually tells us very little about what happens after our death. And just so you think I'm not making this up, I'm going to read from our own Mennonite confession of faith. The New Testament says much about a resurrection. It speaks much less frequently and clearly about the state of persons between the time of their deaths and the resurrection. So I'm not making this up. Paul, in this passage we looked at earlier in Philippians, he does give us some sense of what happens when we die. Do you remember that passage we studied at? Paul said, he's look, thinking about these two options. Is he going to live or is he going to die? And he says, if I die, it's gain because I will be with Christ. So Paul gives us some sense that after our death, we are, our lives are hidden with Christ. But that's not where the story ends. The story doesn't end up there. You know where it ends? It ends up back here. It's kind of cool that we have cemeteries here. Because we can imagine this a little more closely. Our lives are hidden with Christ, but we're coming back here, back to these cemeteries, and it's going to be totally transformed. And some of you might be thinking, like, I don't know about this physically resurrected body. Like, this kind of weirds me out. But here's, it's Halloween, so here's what I'm going to ask you. Do you really want to be a disembodied ghost floating around the ether for eternity? I don't want to be a disembodied ghost floating around the ether. I want a resurrected body like Jesus. And that's the promise of the Bible. And that is so much more of a glorious promise than some kind of vague, like, I don't really know what a ghost is, but that's what I'm going to be. No, that's not our promise. Our promise is resurrection. And we've got to take hold of that again as a church. So what is Jesus' resurrected body like? Well, it's not like a ghost, because remember in Luke's gospel, after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples see Jesus, and they think he is a ghost. 
And Jesus says, I'm not a ghost. Literally, I'm not a ghost. Look at my hands and feet. Touch them if you want to. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see I have. Those are Jesus' words. And then this is what I love. Jesus is like, hey, you got anything to eat? Like Jesus is always eating, which makes me so happy because in the new heavens and new earth, there'll be glorious food, Graham Central Station, mangoes. Jesus is hungry. So we see this continuity between Jesus' old body and his resurrected body. We see the marks of the crucifixion, but Jesus is also unrecognizable to his disciples. His body is totally transformed. He can do things like miraculously appear in locked rooms, which sounds awesome. He can suddenly vanish from the middle of a conversation. Some of us would like to do that sometimes. When Jesus comes back, all things are going to be transformed, including our lowly bodies, our lowly hips and knees that have to be replaced, our hearing that's getting worse, our physical bodies that just feel tired and worn out. Jesus is going to take those lowly bodies and he's going to transform them to be like his glorious body. That is our destiny. But that's not where we're at right now, is it? Man, I'm, <laughs> our physical bodies are aching. Right? I think we can say that as a congregation. We've got some aches and pains, right? Our physical world is groaning right now. Today uh, in Glasgow right now, there's world leaders trying to figure out how do 7 billion people going to survive on a planet that is just getting hotter and hotter and hotter? We are on, living on a planet in absolute crisis. Make no doubt about it. We are not at the destiny of a transformed body and a transformed earth. We find ourselves in between these two things. So how do we live? What does it mean to live in that way? I think Paul actually here gives, doesn't give a lot of specific instructions, but I think this is the most important thing. He gives us an identity, citizens of heaven. And I think, again, this is probably one of the most uh, misunderstood phrases in the book of Philippians because, again, when we think of this, citizens of heaven, we, we usually think, okay, that means my true home is in heaven. I'm a citizen of heaven, and so this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My citizenship, my true home is in heaven. But as we already talked about, that's not the hope of the Bible. The hope of the Bible is heaven and earth merging together. So what does it mean to have our citizenship in heaven? Well, we've got to remember, this is where it helps to get into the cultural context. Paul is writing to Philippi, which is a Roman colony. He's very, he, he knows this, which means there are people in Philippi, probably some in the church, who are Roman citizens. And if you lived in Philippi and were a Roman citizen, that did not mean that one day you thought, I, I want to go to Rome. One day, this isn't my home in Philippi. My home is really in Rome. No, that's not it at all. Your, your role as a Roman citizen in Philippi was to bring the cultural values of Rome to northern Greece, to Macedonia, to Philippi. As N.T. Wright points out, the task of a Roman citizen in a place like Philippi was to bring Roman culture and rule to northern Greece where Philippi was located, to expand Roman influence there. We've got, to, we've got to get that around, our minds around that if we're going to understand what Paul is telling us. If you were a Roman citizen in Philippi, your task was not to go to Rome. Your task was to bring Rome to Philippi. Roman values, Roman culture, Roman rule to Philippi. Let me give you an example. I'm going to have to be careful because there's a couple Texans in the room here, but I'm going to go for it. My mother-in-law here from Texas. 
You can forgive me later. Lots of wonderful things come from Texas. There's a lot of things I hope just kind of stay in Texas, too. But I would love, <laughs> I'm already in trouble. I lived in Texas for four years. But I would love for the food of Texas, Texas-style barbecue, breakfast tacos that are amazing, Tex-Mex, I wish those things would spread far and wide throughout Northeast Ohio. I love Northeast Ohio. But I'll be honest, we need something called flavor here. <laughs> like more than black pepper. <laughs> All right, now I'm in trouble with everybody in this room. <laughs> so if you come to my house to eat, there's a good chance that my wife, and hopefully I'll be doing it too, will be serving you tacos. And we're going to be doing our part in a little, row, a little Texas outpost in our house a little Texas coney to spread the good news and the value of flavor in Northeast Ohio. Paul is telling this, this little group of Philippians that are a minority in Philippi, your citizenship, it's, it's in heaven. Meaning just like in Philippi, a colony of Rome, you are an outpost of heaven. And your job, as I heard one person put it, is to heavenize earth. Your task is to bring the values and flavor and culture of heaven and bring them to earth. How do we do that? I wish I had more time, but we don't. How do we do that? Let's think about two things, though. How do we, how do we bring heaven to earth? I think this is the most important thing I think I can say. We have got to clarify our allegiances. We have got to clarify our citizenship is in heaven, which means our primary allegiance is to King Jesus our confession of faith, again, puts it this way. I think it puts it really well. This confession of faith in a Mennonite perspective. The church is the spiritual, social, and political body that gives its allegiance to God alone. As citizens of God's kingdom, we trust in the power of God's love for our defense. The church knows no geographical boundaries and needs no violence for its protection. The only Christian nation is the church of Jesus Christ, made up of people from every tribe and nation, called to witness to God's glory. I can think of no time where there's been more urgency in the church to clarify that her allegiance is to Jesus Christ alone. This week I was listening to an interview by a guy named Ryan Burge. He's a political scientist. That's his main job. Studies trends in American you know, society. He teaches at a college. He's also a pastor at a small Baptist church, which is interesting because you get a political scientist and a pastor speaking. And one of the things he said is that political scientists today are seeing more and more in the data that people in our country are picking their religion based on their politics. More than they are picking their politics based on their religion. And he's saying, like, as a political scientist, this is mind-boggling to him. Because political scientists always assumed it was the opposite way around that religion was the first lens people looked at the world. And politics was somewhere like downstream from there, right? So I see the world primarily through the lens of a Christian. And then somewhere down there is politics. But, but he says in five years, the evidence is that people are beginning to pick their churches based on their politics. Without even realizing, we are seeing uh, the world not through our Christian lens, but through the lens of politics. And don't think this, the evangelical church gets a lot of press about this. Do not think that this is just happening in the evangelical church. This is permeating the Mennonite church too. 
This is happening on the left, and it's happening on the right. And this is dangerous, dangerous, dangerous territory we are moving into. I cannot say that strongly enough. This is dangerous for us as a church. And you'll probably keep hearing me say this, because our citizenship is in heaven. Our values and our culture and our worldview don't come from the Republican Party. They do not come from the Democratic Party. That is not the lens we see through the world. It's through Jesus Christ and our faith as Christians. And if you or I spend four hours a day watching Fox News or CNN, and we spend 30 minutes listening to the scriptures, who wins out? Who wins out every time? Which values are you going to absorb? It, it, so think about, I was thinking about, you get, do you guys have like a, on your phones, do you get like a report like this, like on Sunday of how many like, hours of screen time you had? Like I get a report, like, okay, you spent this many hours. I'm always like, no way. That's not, there's no, I like want to argue with my phone. Like there is no way I was on my phone that much this week because I'm not even aware of how much I'm on my phone. And I want to like argue with my phone. I wish we had an app that like calculated how, many t- how much time during the week we were immersing ourselves in the values of the kingdom through Christian community, through reading the Bible, through talking with God, and how many hours of the week we were immersing ourselves in the values of the world. Because I think we would be shocked. I don't think we have any idea how much of the world's values we are absorbing, all of us. So that's the first thing I just want to say. We've got to clarify our loyalties. We've got to make sure that our citizenship is in heaven and those are the values that we need to bring to bear on our communities. But we also got to do that. We got to bring those values from heaven to bear on earth. Let me just end with this example of I saw in our community this week. Last Thursday, uh, a large group of people gathered in Firestone Park for a vigil uh, of the tragic death of an eighth grader in our community who was hit by a car last week and killed. And you can imagine these lots and lots of eighth graders who were out in this parking lot, and they were just reeling from this tragic loss, trying to make sense. How does that happen? An eighth grader is with us one day in school on Friday, and by Monday, he is gone. And 30 years ago, you, you probably could have assumed, 40 years ago, most of those kids would be in Sunday, like a worship, summer, worship service somewhere on Sunday morning, right? They would have a pastor who would be leading them through, probably thinking about how do we deal with such a tragic loss. You can't assume that. I would guess that most of those kids are not in a church on Sunday morning, okay? But they showed up at a vigil, a vigil that was led, led by the, the pastor to Presbyterian, Presbyterian Church in Columbiana, Pastor Fritz. And they listened. I saw and watched all these eighth graders. They didn't have their phones out or anything. They just listened to a message about a God who snatches life from death. About a man that, that Pastor Fritz talked about, who walked on earth, who had the power to raise Lazarus from the dead. He had a message of hope in the midst of tragedy. This is the kingdom of God coming to bear on earth. And through our lives, through the lives of this congregation, through our midway communities, our job is to allow God to bring the kingdom to bear on our little corner of Northeast Ohio. It's honestly one of the prayers I most frequently pray for us as midway, that God's kingdom would come on, on, at, at midway as it is in heaven. That people will look at us at midway and they will see us not shaped by the values of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or the Libertarians or whatever, but those people, they're shaped by the values of the kingdom of God. That's, That's my dream for this congregation. 
They, they probably hopefully don't even know most of our politics because they are, we are so deeply shaped by the kingdom of God. And here's what I, here's how I, I used to often end with praying. Here's how I want to end this sermon. I want to pray the Lord's prayer together. And I'm just going to stop for a minute after I say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I ask you to do two things. I ask you that you pray that, that, that the kingdom come to midway as it is in heaven. And I, pray, I ask you that you pray that, 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 that our little corner of Northeast Ohio might see glimpses of the kingdom. But I also want you to think about our destiny because that is so important. We've got to keep in mind, we've got to keep the present world in front of us. We care about the present world, but we've got to remember that a glorious day is coming when God's kingdom will be fully here and we will fully transform our lowly bodies. So think about those two things, inviting God to transform this area uh, of, of our Northeast Ohio and also to think about our destiny. So I will start, we'll say the Lord's Prayer together. I will stop, I'll take a minute, and then we will continue. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.